Thank you, Claire, for reading God's word to us. Good morning. My name is Tyler. Great to be with you, friends. The signs were everywhere. We should have seen it coming, and we did. Save the date for spy mania. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join the mania team. Spy mania, two days away on the bulletin board. It came. It was manic. It went. And like the ocean water that pulls back after a massive wave, the mania recedes for a bit. Was it a perfect week? Of course not. <laughs> what week is? But was it an encouraging week? A week filled with glimpses of God's goodness? Certainly. And if you were there, what do you reckon was the greatest part of spy mania? If you couldn't make it, what might you think was the greatest part of last week of spy mania? Was it morning fun and games on the blue court? Was it singing songs with the spy five? Watching the drama, hearing Caleb give the Bible talks, morning tea, endless coffee, small groups, all those amazing activities that we did, the Friday family fun night. Maybe so, maybe so. Though the greatest part of mania may have been something that most people never saw. A small child quietly praying a prayer to trust Jesus. Greatness is not what you'd expect. It is surprising, both bigger and better, and yet smaller and softer than we think. All the way back near the beginning of Luke's gospel, the angel Gabriel delivered this announcement to Mary. You'll, re you'll remember this. He says, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. What's next? He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. True greatness, that is what Luke is going to help us zero in on today. Today also marks our, our final sermon in this series from Luke. And Lord willing, sometime next year, we'll pick up where we leave off. We'll continue our journey with Jesus in Luke's gospel. But today, today we're in Luke chapter 9. Follow along, look closely. Here is what we'll spy. Greatness displayed. Greatness demonstrated. And then greatness defined. Let me pray as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. And you know we come to you this morning. We come here, uh, many of us weary, weak, frail, needy. And it's precisely in these moments, though, where we really need to hear what you say. 
So would you give us attentiveness to your words? Let these words stick in our ears for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Greatness displayed, verse 28. One day, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray. And if you've even read some of the Old Testament, you'll know that mountains were usually momentous places. Places of meeting between God and his people. The Lord God called Moses to speak with him on the top of Mount Sinai. Elijah witnessed the presence of the Lord God passing by as he stood on Mount Horeb. And keep those two people in mind, Moses and Elijah. We'll meet them again soon. Jesus ascends the mountain with his PJs, with three of his disciples, his PJs, Peter, John, and James, the core of his 12 chosen apostles. And Jesus prays to God the Father, the same person we pray to. As Jesus is relating to his Father, something happens that reveals his special relationship with God. It's there in verse 29. Have a look there in your Bibles. The appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Peter, John, and James, they get a glimpse, a physical manifestation of what Luke has been describing for us in all sorts of ways all through his book. They see Jesus' real nature practically bursting with glory. Then Moses and Elijah enter the scene. And why them? Out of all the people in the Old Testament, why them? Well, one possibility is that they, they are the two Old Testament figures most prominently identified with God's revelation, with his words to his people. They appear and they talk with Jesus. Now, what are they chatting about? All the amazing things that Jesus has been doing? No. They talk about what Jesus is going to do. We get to listen in. Verse 31, they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. They are discussing the most important conversation topic ever. How Jesus will accomplish God's plan to save his people. That's what they're talking about. And your Bible, it might have a footnote that that word departure is actually the word exodus. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are chatting about how Jesus will execute a new, better, permanent exodus for God's people. Once you picked your jaw up off the floor, what might you say if you were there? Here's what Peter says to Jesus in verse 33. Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And Luke adds the editorial comment, 
he did not know what he was saying. As in other instances, Peter gets something right and he gets something wrong. What does Peter get right? Here's what. That word shelter, that could also be translated as tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a place, sort of like a fancy tent, where God dwelled with his people. As Peter sees Jesus transfigured, changed, bright, glorious, he seems to know that this is God, come to live amongst his people. And he's right. He's right. But what does Peter get wrong? He wants to put up three shelters, a trio of tabernacles. One for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter wants to honor Jesus, Moses, and Elijah equally. God is going to bring some clarity, though, to Peter's confusion. A cloud appears and covers them on the mountain, and the disciples are afraid. And perhaps they remember from the Old Testament, this passage is soaked in the Old Testament, Perhaps they remember from the Old Testament what we're meant to recall. That cloud, it reminds us of the cloud in which God came to Moses on Mount Sinai and the cloud of God's glory that descended on, that filled the tabernacle. This is no ordinary cloud. A voice speaks from the cloud, and it's the same voice that spoke to Jesus at his baptism, saying, You are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Then the voice spoke to Jesus. This time the voice speaks to Jesus' disciples. It is the voice of God. Here's what he says in verse 35. This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And keep reading verse 36. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. How great is Jesus? Let me use this illustration. Younger people, you may have had your athletics carnival this past term. Is that right? Athletics carnival? Older people, once upon a time when we were younger and fitter, we may have participated in our own athletics carnivals. Peter wanted to put up three shelters, three faction tents, if you will, red, yellow, and blue. But Peter should not have been thinking faction tents. He should have been thinking podiums. Because Moses and Elijah, they are not on the same level as Jesus. And so to put each of them in equal tents and to give them each a participation sticker, it completely misses the point. Despite all their historical significance, Moses and Elijah are mere men. (laughs) Two men, that's how Luke twice describes them. Jesus alone deserves the blue first place ribbon. Top place on the podium. 
Though it's not even necessarily Moses in second place, Elijah in third place, whatever, it is Jesus alone in first place, period. It is him and no one else. Jesus alone is the focal point of history. He is the culmination of what God is doing. And what is God doing? He's saving people through Jesus, showing his grace and his greatness in his Son. Now this mountaintop story, and a true story at that, it it reminds us, see if you identify with this, it reminds us that you don't need to have a mountaintop experience to meet with God. You don't need to have a mountaintop experience to have a relationship with God. Because it's not a matter of you climbing up to God, but of him coming down, descending to us in Jesus. So you can meet him wherever, in the gutter, in the stress, in the mundane, in the hectic routines, in the ordinary joys and needs of life. You can meet him there. And this true story, it also spurs us on to a spiritual alertness, a wide-eyed wakefulness and appreciation of Jesus. Remember, the PJs were very sleepy on the mountain, a bit like me during halftime of the AFL Grand Final yesterday. Though when Peter, James, and John become fully awake, they saw Jesus' glory. They perceived the reality, the uniqueness of Jesus' greatness, above and beyond that of all other humanity. God's greatness is uniquely displayed in his chosen son, Jesus. Number two, greatness demonstrated. Verses 37 to 43. The next day, Jesus and the PJs come down from the mountain, and as often happens in Luke's gospel, a large crowd meets Jesus. Any people in that crowd desperate for Jesus' help, you think? Absolutely. A man calls out in verse 38, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son For he is my only child. A spirit, an evil spirit, is devastating this boy's life. And Luke's description implies that this force of evil, it is particularly brutal. It seizes him. He screams. It throws him into convulsions. He foams at the mouth. It mauls him, slams him to the ground, and only with difficulty Does it leave him? It is terror upon terror. Jesus' disciples, they're powerless to heal this boy and drive the demon out. On the surface, Jesus seems a bit exasperated in verse 41. Did you see that? You unbelieving and perverse generation, he says, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? But Jesus only speaks the truth. Humanity is indeed marked by incompetence, disobedience, and unbelief. 
Despite their failure, though, Jesus is gracious. Check out verse 42. Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Jesus' word makes evil flee. He renews the boy's wellness and restores him back to his family. How does everyone react? Verse 43 tells us that they were all amazed at the greatness of God. The glory, the majesty, the greatness that Peter, John, and James saw on the summit of the mountain is now witnessed by many more at the base of the mountain. Jesus in acts, he demonstrates God's greatness. Number three, greatness defined. We've been through greatness displayed, greatness demonstrated. Now in verse 44, greatness defined. Everyone is marveling at all that Jesus has done. Is it time for Jesus to cool his heels, put his feet up, bask in his glory? No, it's a quick pivot to speaking about his death. See what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 44. Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. Literally, let these words sink into your ears. Remember God's command from that cloud on the mountain. Listen to him. Listen to my son. And now Jesus bids us to listen carefully to lock in, to pay attention to his words. And here they are, verse 44, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus, in all his glory and power, is going to be handed over to a bunch of ordinary humans, betrayed, mocked, crucified, all according to God's plan. In roughly the spaces of a week, the disciples have heard Jesus twice predict his death. It's a lot to take in. It's a lot to take in. They don't understand what Jesus means. It's beyond them. They are still learners, aren't they? Like us. Like us. Figuring Jesus out. Trying to put things together. The disciples needed God's help just as much as we do, opening our eyes and ears to the truth of Jesus. We need God's help for that. And Luke mentions that the meaning of Jesus' words, it, it was also hidden from the disciples. Did you see that? I wonder, maybe it was hidden from them because they were too busy looking at themselves instead of Jesus. Did you notice what happened in verse 46? An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. We know what that's like, don't we? We've had the exact same arguments, at least in our minds and in our hearts. We may think nobody else knows what we're really thinking, what we're really after, but Jesus knows 
He knew their thoughts and he knows the inner workings of our hearts as well. We tend towards this unhealthy craving for greatness. But in the end, where's that got us? That desire for greatness, it causes friction in our relationships with each other. I've seen it happen in my life. It causes rifts in our relationship with God because we become far more concerned with our greatness than with God's greatness. We tie the idea of greatness to personal achievement. We're convinced that our significance must be shown by what we do. But our significance really comes from Jesus. True greatness does not lie in what we've done. That's a lie. True greatness lies in what has been done for us. And look what Jesus does. He, he takes a little child. He takes a little child and has him stand next to him, right beside him. It was only yesterday that Moses and Elijah were standing next to Jesus. But today it's a child. Jesus says real greatness looks different to what we might think. It is little, it is small, it is meek, and it is weak. Let's read his words in verse 48. He says, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. When we embrace the small, the needy, the insignificant, the overlooked and undervalued, we resemble Jesus. We welcome Jesus. And in turn, we welcome the Father who sent his Son for us. In the topsy-turvy kingdom of God, it is the one who is least who is really the greatest. And ultimately, you cannot be lesser. You cannot go lower than the Son of Man being delivered into the hands of men. Jesus humbled himself to the point of dying on a cross for us. Everything about that reeked of weakness. And yet that is true greatness. But it's not particularly attractive, is it? In fact, we may be tempted to hide it. Friends, what do you think our church would look like if we welcomed weakness instead of trying to paper over it? The apparent weakness of the cross, the weakness in ourselves, for a number of years, one of the more interesting physical features of our church building was this piece of white printer paper taped to the ceiling in the foyer to cover over some damage. Some of you may 
remember what I'm talking about. It's, it's not there anymore. It's gone now. Sort of a shame. Maybe it's a reminder that trying to cover over damage like that doesn't really solve anything, does it? What would our church look like if we welcomed weakness instead of trying to paper over it? How might the self-giving grace of Jesus shape our faith and our fellowship together? Have the disciples really heard what Jesus just said? Well, based on what John says in verse 49, it's sort of doubtful. He says, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, Jesus, and we tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Oh boy. It seems the disciples are more concerned about entitlement and exclusivity than they are about service, about the welfare of others. And Jesus says, no, don't don't stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Greatness does not lift itself above others. No, it does not lift itself above others, especially fellow followers of Jesus. Jesus defines greatness as this, as lowering oneself for the benefit of others. And Jesus is exhibit A. Greatness displayed, greatness demonstrated greatness defined. Here is where Luke is driving us. That Jesus' greatness is without comparison. And that means that that we need to turn our amazement to attention. Jesus' greatness is without comparison. Let's turn our amazement into attention. Jesus' greatness is not trivial. It's not some viral craze. It's not rivaled by anything else. It impacts your eternity. Jesus' greatness is for much more than you to admire. It is for your salvation. If all you're doing is marveling at Jesus, you're missing the point. Because who has ever been saved by being amazed at how great Jesus is? No one. No one has ever been saved by being amazed at how great Jesus is. Salvation lies in listening to Jesus, in paying attention to him, and trusting him. We live in a time where it's never been easier to hear someone. So many voices from so many sources just washing over us. But it's never been harder to actually listen to someone. Do you find that? It's never been harder to actually listen to someone. We need Jesus' words to sink deep into our ears. So what something little, something small you could do to remind yourself, to remind others 
of Jesus each day. Jesus' greatness, it's without comparison. Turn amazement into attention. Friends, let's listen to Jesus, trusting that his greatness, his greatness is for our eternal good. Amen.